millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I am your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks for listening and downloading today's podcast. This week, we saw a terrific game between Chelsea and Liverpool and a result nobody saw coming. A true underdog result where a ragtag bunch of unknown players comprehensively beat a footballing institution. I'm talking, of course, about West Brom's win over West Ham United. In order to discuss those results and other games, I am joined by my two best friends in the world who have promised me that they will not be criticizing Manchester United tonight. Morgan Green and Chris Hennaj. Welcome to the podcast, guys. So, Chris, we know you're out uh, in New York City right now. Uh, what have you been up to? What have you been doing this trip? Did you catch any MLS games? Uh, yeah, actually, funny enough, I was at New York City FC v Dallas last night, which was a, a cracking game. Even even Oscar Perez said it was a, a really good advert for the league, which I'm inclined to agree with. Um, outside of that, keeping abreast of everything to do with the Premier League and, and Europe. But, yeah, it's... It doesn't take a break, even though you kind of get away from the, the hub of it all. You're, you're still able to stay connected, which I think is a great thing. Yeah, and you, you were thinking you might get some time off, you know, some vacation. Nope, none of that. Always watching. <laughs> Not even close. Always watching football. To be honest, like even if you were on vacation, and this is true for me, even if I was on vacation, I would never stop watching football. So uh, it's just mm. the greatest love of my life. All right, guys, so let's uh, get into talking about this week. Uh, well, let's start, Morgan, with... Chelsea versus Liverpool. According to your Twitter, Chelsea, uh, according to your Twitter, Morgan, you had a lot of thoughts on how Chelsea would comprehensively beat Liverpool. But what happened, Morgan? Uh, they did not comprehensively beat <laughs> Liverpool. Um, that's did- really kind of boiled down to <laughs> there. <clears throat> I mean, I really thought that, you know, Conte, given all of his uh, tactical genius and everything I, I thought he would have handled the you know the Liverpool onslaught a lot better but again too you got to kind of put that down to the players as well uh, they just the first half of everything I saw now again I was at work for it so I call it bits and pieces um, but from everything I read all the stats I saw uh, it just kind of fell apart then kind of bowed to that Liverpool pr- pressure in the first half it could have been a lot worse um, uh, really, when you think, when I think about it, at least, um, you know, Jordan Henderson scored a five-year goal. Yeah. Uh, it's doing a Luka Modric impression. So, <laughs> I mean, for that, 
you know, they really could have come away with a draw. And I think that that, you know, to me at least in the second half, when Chelsea would have to be better. As a Chelsea fan, that would have been huge for us. But, um, you know, really it, it's very disappointing that they kind of came out the way they did. And, you know, David Luiz played as best as he could, which was good to see from him game, even though he kind of came back because of John Terry's injury. So, uh, disappointing overall. Again, they'll go forward and they'll have next time to beat them at uh, Anfield. Now, Chris, I mean, Morgan's trying to get away from Chelsea and we're going to nail him. He's trying to deflect the attention onto Liverpool, but we're going to nail him about Chelsea in a second. But he did bring up Henderson. And I wonder if if this is a pivotal moment for Henderson. An, An exceptional goal. One of the goals, it'll go down as one of the goals of the season. And I remember the reason I say this is I remember a couple of pivotal moments in Gerard's career because he took over as captain of Liverpool very early. He took over from Sammy Hopia. He was 22, 23 at the time. Um, I remember him tracking, uh, outplaying Patrick Vieira and Patrick Vieira in his in his pomp at you know at the peak of Patrick Vieira's powers. Have we seen a pivotal moment moment like that in in uh, Henderson's career because he really has divided opinion overall. He has. I think this is one moment, but I think, as you alluded to in the question there, there were moments, plural, for, for Gerard, And I think that's what Henderson needs. Um, I think the, the benefit he has at the minute is the style they're trying to play is very conducive to his talents, which, for me, I'm not looking to diminish his technical abilities as much as say that I think his physical aspects and assets are the most important in his game. His ability to run, his ability to get from both ends of the field, not only quickly, but consistently through that 90 minutes. And we talk about the, the rock and roll, heavy metal football that, that Jurgen Klopp talks about. That's ideal for, for someone like him. Um, I think the technical side, I think he's always been a strong technician um, with essentially peaks of supreme technical ability, which is what we saw against Chelsea. It, as is often the case, and I think we could apply this to not just Jordan Henderson, but a good portion of that Liverpool squad. Mm-hmm. Can consistency be achieved? That's that's the only thing I think holding them back from a Premier League title at this point is, is consistency. Um, how you achieve that can come in a variety of ways. There's an interesting debate, I think, to be had at some point about confidence and, and how influential confidence is in achieving consistency and whether the ability of Sadio Mane and his, his just kind of energy and game-changing ability will raise them in the same way that Luis Suarez did. Morgan, Chris brings up some awesome points there. Uh, and we need to, I think it's a perfect transition for what we need to get into because Chris points out the fact that, uh, points out the idea that, you know, this, this Liverpool team has the potential under Klopp to be champions of, uh, to win the Premier League. And I think other managers, other teams need to recognize that in their first phase, when they come out of the blocks, they are exceptionally good. They're great out of the blocks. The, the first 20 minutes, 25 minutes, they're going to dominate teams that might be, quote-unquote, better than them on paper. Um, yet, manager after manager keeps falling to th- this. Uh, instead of trying to absorb that pressure, instead of trying to get past that point, every manager tries to play a different game against Liverpool. They lose goals over and over again, and then gets to the point that they've lost too many goals by the time Liverpool tire, which is around the 40th mar- uh, minute mark. And there's and there's that gap for like 30 minutes where Liverpool are essentially there to be had. And they're, vulnerable. they're very vulnerable. So that's the, that's the problem for me and why I don't think Liverpool are contenders. 
And I don't understand why mo- more managers are not taking advantage of this obvious flaw. Well, I, I think you have to look at it in a couple of ways. The first way, and I can see it um, from a team that has a, you know, so if you look at a team that has exceptional attacking talent, you can think, okay, you, we know they're going to come at us hard and fast, but if we can nick a goal, we can take them out of their game. If we get that early goal, we can take them out, and I think that we can do that. I think that's something that runs through a lot of teams' minds when they come up against Liverpool is to try and score early, you know, sh- you know, rattle their confidence, rattle their game, and try and make them change it. Unfortunately, we haven't really seen a team do that too, too much. I mean, we saw, um, you know, the Arsenal game. I just there aren't a lot of teams. I think even if you do get that one early goal, I think this Liverpool team with Klopp has the confidence to look at it and say, okay, you got one, we're going to get two. Um, you know, and then the other thing you kind of look at it as is, you know, do you really want to start the game? soaking up that pressure, parking the bus, and possibly giving up a goal or two no matter what. Because, again, like you said, they do have uh, Sadio Mane, some exceptional attacking talent, some exceptional attacking midfielders on there that even if you do try and soak up the pressure, there's still a good chance you give up at least one goal. Um, So you're starting down that way. So it's really, I, I mean, it's kind of a negative in those two different ways. But like you said, I think there is a way that you can sit there and try and soak it up and just really play your luck. I think you'll see that happen more maybe against like a David Moyes side mm. uh, that might sit back, try and soak it up, trying, you know, and then try and get something on the counter around the 40th minute. It may work against a team like that. But for some reason, a lot of these, you know, bigger teams, your Chelsea's, your cities, your uh, Manchester United's, uh, I wouldn't put them in a big team right now, but the, <laughs> You know they're they're going to have that confidence of okay let's just you know, we're going to go out we're going to establish ourselves and we're going to get that early right. goal and knock their game and it hasn't happened yet. Chris, let's let's press on this again because you you always come up with really good analogies and while Morgan was talking, I was trying to come up with one that I can think of and the one that come pops off to me from recent Olympics. Uh, I used to run track in college myself, so this is close to my heart. I think the only real tactical race in tr- in all of track is the fifteen hundred. Is the it's the mile right? In the mile, you have different kinds of runners. You have those who come out of uh, push out of the starting line hard and then kind of ease off and then try to kick at the end. You have those that sit at the back of the pack and wait for people to maneuver around, drag behind them, and then push right towards the front around the about with about six hundred meters to go. Liverpool are definitely one of those that are pushing out really hard from the blocks. They're basically sprinting the first 400 meters, leaving everyone in their wake. And for whatever reason, no other manager is being able to understand that that's something that can be dealt with. You you just let them get away. You let them or, or you you sort of just keep up with them. And eventually they're going to tire. And why is it? I, I'm curious why no None of the great managers in the league, we, you know, Conte, uh, we have all these managers who keep dro- name dropping every week. No one is being able to outthink Klopp right now with that. I think I like your analogy a lot, actually. I, I think where I would take it myself, based on, on kind of my own uh, kind of understanding, is Wait, let's what, look at UFC on, what, what, event, what event did you run in track? Uh, I didn't run any, trust me. Um, I watched. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, um, UFC. And even go then, I got tired. Um, <laughs> but if you look at, at, at Conor McGregor, um, he's someone that predominantly starts his fights very aggressively, very quickly, tries to shut them down in the first few rounds if he can. 
Yeah. Um, his style is quite intensive in terms of his stamina and, and what it does to his body. And if we look at that Nick Diaz fight, the one of the few fights where he's had to go five rounds, towards the end, he was absolutely gassed. And it's a similar concept with Liverpool. They try to, to knock you out, so to speak, and steamroll you early on. And the difficulty is, much like some of McGregor's early opponents, it's very easy to say, well, can you not manage that? Can you not mm, try and take him sure. the distance? It can be difficult if he just catches you with one, in the same way that it can be difficult if Liverpool catch you with a goal, if they mm. score inside the first 10 minutes, because then your kind of inclination is, OK, we need to try and get back into this. We need to start pushing them and, and seeing if we can engineer a goal for ourselves. So it's, it's a game, I, I think, against Liverpool, it's a game that needs to be meticulously managed. Yeah. from start to finish, almost in 10 to 15 minute chunks, which I don't know if that's something that's readily done across the league um, in terms of, I think you actually need to plan, okay, and, and now Lampard used to do this sometimes against bigger teams, he would sit deep really compact for 60 minutes and then use the last 30 minutes as their opportunity to attack and go at the opponent now, that's not always the most eye-catching for a support, especially when you're playing at home, which is something mm -hmm. he tended to do and right. that's the difficulty, is that you're, you're, you're essentially almost admitting they're going to be the better team for a portion of this game. And we're going to let them be the better team, in theory. But we're not going to let them score, because that's what will make them the better team when the final whistle goes. Morgan, Chelsea were not the better team. Antonio Conte was not the better manager. Let's talk about that. We already talked about one thing that Conte got wrong and other managers have got wrong about Liverpool, which is not being cognizant of that first phase. The other one is at the end of the game, which are the the fact that he waited until the 82nd, I think, minute to sub on the likes of Fabregas. And the game was crying out for Fabregas at 2-1. Why did he wait that long? Buddy, your guess is as good as mine on there. And I'm shocked he didn't bring on Batshuayi. Right. Because uh, he did need the goal. He was warming uh, up. I thought he was going to come on. I, I, exactly. And that was the one thing I thought. I, for me right now, what I see from these Antonio Conte teams is he hasn't changed a whole lot from last year, Barr and Golo Conte uh, starting over, you know, Cesc Fabregas. Yeah, but and then the, the, the counterpoint to that, Morgan, is that that team is, again, not changed much from the team that won the Premier League two seasons earlier. Exactly. But the change between then and now was the psychological damage done from last season. Hmm. And I think why you're seeing this team kind of the way they are now they you know they've had brief glimpses of competency and dominance mm. uh this year but it's you know something as you talked about consistency uh we haven't seen it consistently i think conte's done a very good job of getting diego costa's head right as we see from him just scoring goals pretty much every game this year i think hazard has been a heck of a lot better uh since he came in but there are still a lot of players i think that are still dealing with that hangover of Jose Mourinho last year, that 10th place finish last year. The Manu Matic was particularly poor, I think. Oscar kind of reverted back to the kid running around the pitch, not really doing what he's supposed to be doing. Um, yeah, Thibaut Courtois, another player who in recent weeks has looked very weak. He yeah, he has weak. regressed, hasn't he? Yeah. It's very shocking to see how do, he's regressed. Do you, do you attribute that to anything beyond uh, Mourinho? I mean, I, I, when uh, Courtois came back and re uh, replaced Czech, he was exceptionally good. Then he had that injury, if I remember. He was out for two or three months, wasn't he? Is it uh, something to do with that? I, see, I don't know. I think it's I, I think it's a confidence thing. I think when he came back, he let in a couple of soft goals, and I think that 
he's just it seems like his confidence just isn't quite mm. there and he's doing stuff that he shouldn't be doing mm. um you know i'm hoping that with a little bit more work with the uh goalkeeping the new goalkeeping coaches that have come in um you know they'll be able to get his head right but i just think last year just really rocked this team to the core and you know you're still seeing them trying to get over that i mean the defense in particular which has always been a chelsea specialty was the defense and it's been very very poor since pretty much all of last year yeah uh you know ivanovich this is probably going to be his last year and that's really the one uh, i don't know i would say the one positive is that you've got kurt zuma coming back who was very good in my mind last year before his injury you've got andy christensen coming back next year who's been fantastic for dortmund and he's only 20 years old uh i'm not dortmund uh, for mochen gladbach um you know there are changes coming to this team the only question i have is is that when it comes and you kind of take out those you know the older guard the shell-shocked guys possibly matic in january you know what do you replace them with and how does this team respond and does antonio conte stay to you know see out the finished product if they don't finish in the top four is his job safe you know that's the biggest Chris, I, I have I have to say that I thought Nemanja Matic had had a pretty good game. I think Matic has been fairly good under Antonio Conte. I think he looks much better than he did last season. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think he was involved in the goal. Uh, he had the assist for the goal. Um, I thought he was fine. What I do agree with Morgan on, Chris, is the issue at right back, um, which uh, with Ivanovic, and I, it makes me wonder why Quadrado was let go because on paper Quadrado is about as prototypical of an Antonio Conte fullback as there ever has been one. I, I see your point. I think the difficulty is is that Cuadrado is, to me at least, a bit more attacking-minded. And I think the issue for, for Chelsea, at least from a fullback perspective, hasn't really been what they do in the final third. It's what they do in their own defensive third. Now, an issue I think that, that Arsenal and Chelsea, funnily enough, have shared over these last few years is showing loyalty to the wrong players. One of the things I've always kind of admired about Chelsea and Ember Bramovich, to the point of a fault almost, is that he's very pragmatic. He will get rid of someone, be it a coach, be it a player, when they've stopped serving a purpose. Now, there have been rare exceptions to that. Is, is pragmatic uh, and a euphemism for ruthless now? Is that what it is? Yeah, I would I would say that's that's okay. the word you use when you know you don't want uh, to get in trouble or anything like that. <laughs> okay. um, I th- I think that that ruthlessness has at times cost pragmatism, them Chris. Pragmatism. Uh, um, yes, that that pragmatism has cost them. Um, often when it has meandered into ruthlessness, shall we say? Yeah. Um, and and yet, like I said, there are these players who I think skipped through, and and Ivanovic is a good case. Is that someone who? This is not the first time we've had the conversation about his mm. sort of frailties and, and his lack of, I would say, ability to perform on that top level anymore. Mm-hmm. And yet they don't seem eager to kind of address it. Um, I think they've tried to, by getting the likes of Babaraman in, but, but that to me seemed a very ill-conceived sort of reach in terms of a signing. Um, it didn't seem like it was diligently processed by Chelsea. And yet, I think you look at the, that famous lone army that they've got and we keep hearing about, there's a lot of players that I think really you kind of have to trust and throw in there now. Um, they couldn't, from what I can gather, get Andreas Christensen back. But there are a fair few players, maybe the likes of Pasalic, uh, Chalaba, people like that. Granted, they wouldn't solve the fullback issue, but I think they could contribute now. And I think you have to 
show patience to that process. And that's my concern is that when you do operate with that ruthlessness, do you really have the time to be patient, not just with a manager, but also with young players that will take time to bet in? Because that's one of the, the difficulties with Chelsea, I think, in the Abramovich era, is that, that it's been the equivalent of throwing players into a pool and seeing whether they sink or drown. Mm. Sorry, float or sink even. Right. Um, yeah, Morgan, of course. No, I was just going to say, as far as uh, the Ivanovich and the reason I think this is going to be his last year, um, you know, you, again, you're getting Kurt Zuma back from injury, you're going to get Andy Christensen back, but I think that uh, right now the purchase of Marcos Alonso is going to be the reason why. Um, you know, with Marcos Alonso coming in, hopefully they're going to bet him in, and they brought him in to put him at left back and then move uh, Cesar Estelicueta back to the right, pad, right back position at that point, which is his natural position. I mean, he's a right back that's been playing spectacularly at left back for the last couple of years. So I think that's why you're, you know, you've seen the, the buy of uh, Baba Rachman, even though it didn't turn out. I think that was the long-term goal was to get Azpilicueta back to right back so that you could either move Ivanovic into the center or just get rid of him. Baba Rachman didn't turn out, so I don't, I don't think that's why you saw that last year. So we'll see, I guess, this year with uh, – Marcos Alonso, if he ends up, and again, he's a player that's played in Italy for a while. Antonio Conte has played against him. He did pretty well for Sunderland when he was there, and I'm sure Chris knows about that when he was at Sunderland. So, I, I mean, I would say that in the long view, you're seeing, you're going to see a uh, back situation of Azpilicueta and Alonso, hopefully, and then uh, going forward, that should solve that and probably see Ivanovic get left in the dust. Mm. So, gentlemen, we'll talk about Hull City, Arsenal, as well as Everton, Middlesbrough in a second, but Listeners, if you if you enjoy the World Soccer Talk podcast and you'd like to support the pod, there are two ways you can help. First, you can give us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you listen to us on. Second, you can sign up for a free 24-hour trial to our sponsors, Fubo TV, the legal streaming service that brings you La Liga, Serie A, the Championship, and the League Cup. Speaking of the League Cup, you can watch the following League Cup games live and on demand with a 24-hour trial to Fubo TV this week. On Tuesday, it's Leicester versus Chelsea. Then on Wednesday, it's Favourites Northampton Town against Minnows Manchester United, as well as Swansea versus Manchester City. Sign up today for the 24-hour trial at www.worldsoccertalk.com slash FuboTV. Again, that's worldsoccertalk.com slash FuboTV. Thanks for supporting the World Soccer Talk podcast. Chris, Hull, Arsenal, Hull have given a real good showing of what they can do with very limited resources. Uh, but Arsenal, after Arsenal scored that early goal uh, and Hull went down to 10 men before the break, uh, it, they were always up against it, weren't they? They were. And, and this was a, a funny game because I actually left it with the score at 2-1 and came back to watch it later on. Mm-hmm. And and I came away from it thinking too. One, it's fairly respectable for a ten-man whole side that is, right. you know, in a little bit of, of kind of turbulence at the minute. And then you go and see the full-time score, and you think, okay, that's a, a little bit of a shellacking, for want of a better word. Um, I think honestly, at, at this point, Hull just have to get Mike feeling tied down. I think they need yeah. that stability. Um, the longer that kind of rumbles on, I think the more detrimental it is to to what they're trying to achieve. As an actual team, to, to kind of isolate that, I don't think they're a terrible bunch of players. I think yeah. the likes of Curtis Davis is, is a little bit underrated. I think there's a, a fairly solid British core there that will give them industry, if not always exceptional talent. 
And I think often that can win out. We've, we've seen enough instances of teams that stayed up just because they outworked the opposition for 38 weeks of the, the season. And I, I think Hull could fall into that category. Um, as for things from an Arsenal perspective, I completely see why the fans are, are delighted with that Xhaka goal. But on the same instance, it feels like a wonderfully Arsenal moment because it's a beautiful goal scored at a totally inconsequential time. <laughs> um, so I think if if he's going to do anything, it needs to be much like Pogba to, to use that same yardstick, albeit a much shorter one because he costs a lot less. It needs to be in a big game for me. It needs to be at a really defining moment. That's where I need to see Granit Xhaka come to the fore. Chris is so easily thrown shade at Arsenal, Manchester United, and Pogba in one sentence. Well done, Chris. Morgan, we have to talk about Granit Xhaka, don't we? Uh, you and I talked very briefly about this. Your thoughts, does he need to be starting every game? I mean, I think so. There's no reason that you're buying him to kind of have him reinforce the bench. I mean, I think he's a pretty good talent. Uh, he obviously played very well last year for Borussia Mönchengladbach. Um, you know, at this point, I mean, yeah, I mean, you shelled out the money for him. You need to put him in. He's a good player. I think if they want him to grow, then he needs to get the playing time, not just coming off of the bench. Yeah, I, I... Uh, cleared out some guys like Matthew Flamini and stuff like that. So why not? You know, why not put Jaka in there? I mean, I think he, I think they'll do well. I agree. I, I think this was a good game to have him start. I mean, it worked. I we. We are. I feel sometimes we do critic. We hold Arsenal to a different standard than we do the other teams. Sure, the four-one did flatter them a little bit because two-one, as Chris pointed out, was really two-one, and then they scored a couple of goals uh, in the last five to ten minutes. Actually, five minutes. Uh, but at the same time, it is a four-one win away from home. Maybe we should give them a little bit more credit, Chris. No, I think I think you can. I think. I think you're right, actually. In truth, there is, and I'm, I'm probably guilty of this myself, a little bit of uh, kind of hyperbole attached to Arsenal in terms of whether you give them credit or you criticise them. I think, certainly, it was mission accomplished from that. I think, in that respect, we need to give them a little bit more time, not just to bet in, but I think to just kind of assess where they are in this league. I think that's the difficulty, is that there's a lot of ambiguity about where Arsenal actually sit in this picture when we try and stack things up. And a lot of our estimations and predictions are, are rooted in, well, how much did they spend? And the truth is, comparative to the, the rivals they aspire to be alongside, you would argue not a great deal. They haven't had a huge wealth of players come in. In fact, the ones that, that did, they, they felt like marquee signings in the sense that they were the only ones through the door. Um, and, and in fairness to, to Wenger, you know, I think he's dealt with that criticism quite well. I thought his point about Rob Holding was, was quite intelligent. Um, <laughs> And I, and I think, in that sense, we need them to have that test. And I think we're, we're trying to work that out. Is it against a rival? Perhaps not. Maybe it's those difficult games at home, sort of in that winter period, where they tend to slip up. Um, that's where we need to, to kind of gauge them. Because at the minute, I don't think they're doing terribly. Um, and equally, I also don't think the league is won at this point in the season. Yeah. I think it tends to come in that winter period that I was talking about. Yeah, I agree. Uh I love the Rob Holding thing. Uh, had he been, what do you say? Had he been bought for thirty million, we'd be giving him more credit. So true, Morgan. I think, uh, I think he said, yeah. "I'm I'm sorry, he didn't cost fifty five million." That's what, that's what it was. Which that's was which was the ultimate kind of passive aggressive shade. I think that you can yeah. can get from someone. <laughs> Very vintage Wenger too. Morgan, last point about this. Um, Alexis Sanchez. I, I thought he was 
uh, good today. He, he dragged McGuire and Curtis Davis, as well as Jake Livermore, out of position to the point that if you look at their well, their average positions, there was a huge gap between those two players, which is why Arsenal were able to uh, cut through. But the question I have is Alexis Sanchez up top. Um, I'm a little torn on that. In some ways, having the support supporting cast he does with the likes of Otsil, Iwobi, um, etc., I think it could work, but I don't know if you if you need if you need some hold up play that might not be the best bet. And I think he got away with it in this game because it was whole city. But how do you feel about Alexis Sanchez playing as essentially a false nine? I mean, you you pretty much hit my point right on the head there. I think it's uh, a tactic that'll work against some of the weaker sides in the league, some of the less disciplined sides in the league because. Mm. Of all of Sanchez's running, he can take guys out of position. He can, you know, he just drags people all over the park, and he's got the speed to just run all day. Um, I think against some of the bigger sides, like you know, if they're coming up against Man City, I think absolutely you need to put Giroud in there to hold up play a little bit and allow him a little bit more creativity to run around. Um, you know, from a Giroud, you know, to get a Giroud pass or to have just somebody big up in there uh, to bomb through on the uh, center back. So I, I think it's something that. You know, if it's a way that he can work it out as a rotation, like, hey, you know, we're going to play uh, Sunderland this week. Let's go ahead and put Sanchez up top and give Giroud a rest. Absolutely. I think it's something that'll work out, but it's yeah. not something that I would be doing week in, week out, you know, every game of the year. Got good points. Let's uh, move ahead, Chris. Let's talk about uh, Everton's win against Middlesbrough. Uh, all the goals in this game were in the first half. Everton came out of the box really hard. Uh, but I have to ask you about that. That Stecklenburg goal, the, the Negret, sorry, Negretto's uh, tackle on Stecklenburg, which led to the uh, the own goal. Strange decision for me. I, I thought it was a clear cut foul on the goalkeeper. Um, and the reason I bring it up, I, I don't really like to talk about goalkeeper uh, referee decisions too often, but I'm wondering if we're starting to see um, maybe a reversion back to requiring goalkeepers to be a little more old school in that sense like you, you should be able to man up and, and take a tackle or two because a tackle like that has we've seen it given pretty much every other time in in the i don't know last hundred games in the premier league yeah i think there's there's two very hard line camps of, of thought on this one which is goalkeepers are overprotected um who will agree that that, that, that goal was completely valid I think there are also those who think that actually, you know, we need to afford goalkeepers protection and we don't want sort of goals of yesteryear where you could bundle the goalkeeper over the line and, and celebrate. Um, personally, having watched it back a few times, um, I can almost see the arguments of both sides mm. and yet kind of come away thinking that Mr. Kellenberg, someone of his size, that kind of thing, he should be taking that fairly comfortably. Mm. Um, again, I, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, voting for the idea that again you can start charging at goalkeepers recklessly, I thought it was a straight jump personally, oh. um, and the two of them have, have gone up for it, and and Negredo's just managed to to win out and, and get the ball on the goal. I, th- I think in that sense it's it's something that we'll, Common will need to watch um, because Sir Kellenberg, you know, you go back to when he was at Ajax, really fantastic prospect. Um, I was surprised when he chose to, to pick him up. I know. That he knows him, so there's a, an understanding there. I think he had him at Southampton as well, which again helps that familiarity and, and transitioning away from from Tim Howard because I don't think Joel Robles is ready. Right. I just think he's got a, a mistake in him. That's the mm. problem. I, th- I think too often he's 
he's got the ability to drop something and, and lead to something that should be routine, ending up being a, a goal for the opposition. And it's really not what you want from your starting goalkeeper. Morgan, uh, the players that kind of made up for that mistake from Stecklenburg is our, uh, sorry, our Gareth Barry, who scored, uh, I think it's 56th goal in the Premier League. Uh, Seamus Coleman with a Messi-esque goal. And then uh, Lukaku. Actually, I don't know who the goal was awarded to. Lukaku claimed it. I think it was a Balassi cross, if I'm remembering that correctly. Uh, but the the point yeah. I have is uh, is about Lukaku. Uh, he's starting to he started the season fairly well again. Um, as, as someone who saw him as a youngster when he first came to Chelsea, uh, signing from uh, where did he sign from? Did he sign from Vitesse? No, he signed from Anderlecht, and they Anderlecht. signed him and three of his brothers. Uh, Tika, Lamisha, and Charlie. Charlie's now on loan at uh, Betis, if I remember right. And Charlie's actually a very big prospect. Isn't isn't there the the, def- the defender brother who plays for Belgium, Jordan? Is that? I'm, th- I'm thinking. No, you know what? I got the Masunda boys and Lukaku boys and that stuff. I'm sorry. Oh. Yeah, they did find Lukaku from Anderlecht. Uh, Jordan now is uh he's in Serie A. I want to say. Mm. I can't remember exactly where he is, but they didn't sign him. Yeah, I got. I'm yeah. sorry because they signed them all. They signed all three of them uh, within like a year or so of each other, or all four of those guys within a year or so of each other. Chris, you want to correct? He's us with Lazio. Stupidity? Lazio. There we go. That's okay. That's yes. right. Yeah. He signed for them in the summer. Uh, Morgan, so Romero Lukaku. Thoughts on Romero yeah. Lukaku's play uh, at Everton this so so far? We haven't had a chance to talk to you about it. Yeah, no. I mean, it's you know he's kind of he's broken his goal drought uh, three times now. Four times now, excuse me. <laughs> um, so he hasn't gone hundreds of, you know, thousands of minutes without a goal. I mean, I think that, you know, he's a very, very good striker. He's somebody who I loved and adored watching him come up, watching him play online. Um, I just, you know, him and Kevin De Bruyne will always be sore spots for me from that Mourinho takeover because I, I just don't see how you could not use talents like that in pretty much any side. There's absolutely no reason for it. And, um, you know, I mean, you're seeing it now at Everton. I think that Coleman is going to use him very well. I think he's going to play very well again this year. I think he's got, what, the second most goals in the Premier League over the last, like, three years outside yeah. of uh, where or something. I think, yeah. the, the numbers speak for themselves. You know, he's a striker that's, in my mind, you know, the guy that, he always got compared to was Didier Drogba because he was big, he was strong, he was fast. And the fact that Chelsea let that go the way they did just because Mourinho didn't like him because he didn't take a penalty right in, uh, you know, in the Super Cup game. It's just, it's ridiculous. It's always going to be a sore subject with me, but I'm glad to see that he's playing well. And, um, you know, hopefully they'll break the bank and put out that 70 million and bring him back. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, when we come back, we'll talk about, uh, Manchester City's win, Leicester's win. And talk about the the incredible game that was West Brom versus uh, West Ham United. Stay tuned for the part two of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Chris Lester's win over Burnley three nothing. Uh, I was watching this game. It, it was the game I focused on uh, in on in the uh, 10, 10 a.m. kickoff here stateside yesterday. Leicester created some really good chances down the left and. That was primary. Uh, and by the way, Mares missed a sitter. He should have buried one of the crosses Christian Fuchs sent in. And that's who I want to talk about, Chris. Christian Fuchs, uh, we talked about him a little bit last year, uh, but really wasn't one of those players that we hi- highlighted because we tended to focus on, uh, obviously, Angola Conte and Drinkwater and Vardy and Mares. 
But how crucial has this guy been uh, as uh, both a creative force as well as keeping that defense compact down the left? Honestly, when he signed, I didn't think he would bring much. I'll be very candid about it. I thought, you know, he's a middle-of-the-road fullback. He's been in the Bundesliga most of his career. If I remember rightly, he was exceptionally close to joining Sunderland. Um, And having watched him, again, the first few performances, I thought, you know, again, it's probably the same kind of thought, middle-of-the-road, not too terrible. I think, actually, he's he's a solid defender who can also contribute in the final third. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think he surprised me a little bit. I think what he does as well, he's, he's at the stage of his career where he brings an experience and a calmness that I don't think you'll find elsewhere in that squad. I mean, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Schlupp is sort of this weird, versatile, almost modern player who can play anywhere on that left side. Um, and yet, I think if I had the choice between the two, I'd go for fucks every day of the the week. Um, I didn't mean that to sound how it came out. Um, but yeah, I, I think I would choose him first because I think he just... I think we're having some trouble with uh, your audio, Chris. Yeah, Chris, we're, we're going to um, get you back on as soon as as, as we can. Uh, Morgan, your, your thoughts on Christian Fuchs? Can I just say that's the classic Chris. He makes an exceptional point, brings more insight to anybody else, and then he's <laughs> failed by the connection. <laughs> Guarantee you that Wi-Fi. answer of the year, 10 times better than anything I could come up with on the spot, and we lost it because of <laughs> Skype. Thank you, Skype. Thank um, you, Skype. You know, again, I think, you know, like Chris said, he Christian Fuchs is a guy who, you know, he did. He played in the Bundesliga for his whole career. Not really a superstar, not somebody who would end up on your, you know, top 10 lists of uh, left backs in the whole world. Right. But I think that, you know, Ranieri, when he bought him, had an idea for him in mind. And just, I think Ranieri did a very good job of putting him in positions to succeed. But I think also that, you know, he instilled a confidence in Fuchs. And we've seen that, you know, we've seen that with his performances. He's played really, really well, really, really consistently uh, over, you know, obviously over the championship season. He's played very well this year. So I think, uh, you know, out of all the signings, you know, if it wasn't for Angolo Conte, I think that, you know, Fuchs would be that, uh, you know, that one signing that everybody's kind of pointing to as the most underrated signing for uh, Leicester. Morgan, let's let's actually move ahead since uh, I think what Chris was trying to say was we, we got what we needed to out of that. But let's let's try to move ahead to talking about City versus Bournemouth. Um, I mean, there are not enough superlatives to what how quickly Guardiola has has manifested his tactical ideas onto this team, and we won't get a better example of that than that second goal. I mean, you could watch that counterattack all day. There's a clearance from a defensive set piece. There's a counterattack involving fast buildup, really fast buildup, yet not a single pass is played long. It's all short passes, all interchange of position, and then a perfectly weighted uh, uh, critical through pass from De Bruyne leads to Sterling uh, opening up um, and and knocking the ball pass for, uh, back to Inacio. So just, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this Manchester City team? Because I- I- even as someone who... I don't know how to frame this. As someone who should be disliking them as a Man United supporter, I can't help but look at this team and think nothing but admiration. 
Well, I think you need to look back. I mean, this is a Manchester City team that's been building for this year. They've been building for the coming of Pep Guardiola since they, you know, mm. kind of signed that deal with the devil with the Barcelona boys that they all brought in in their uh, front office. Right. So, you know, I think a lot of the signings that you've seen, especially over the last year, when it became pretty apparent that Pep wasn't going to be staying at Bayern, and, mm-hmm. and if you want, I guarantee you there was some collusion in him saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm probably, this is my last year here, and then I'll come there. Um, you know, so this is a team that Pep was able to come into and already get started. I think the Raheem Sterling signing was the first one that off into that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, really there wasn't a whole lot for him to do. He didn't have to go out and buy a bunch of key players and then try and bed them in. A lot of the key players have already been there at least for one season. So, you know, it's really good. I mean, they came in, they already have pretty much a good idea of how Pep plays. They're players that play in systems that are similar to how Pep plays. Mm. Uh, they have the qualities that Pep looks for, and that's why I think you've seen such a seamless transition from the Pellegrini era to the Pep Guardiola era, uh, which is obviously going to be a lot more successful in the Pellegrini era, in my opinion, um, you know, to why they're playing as well as they are. And plus, you know, a guy like Kevin De Bruyne in any team doesn't hurt, and it hurts me to say that. <laughs> Chris, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, after the game, Guardiola said that he, he, he feels Kevin De Bruyne is one of the better players he's worked with. I remember him saying... Lom was the most intelligent player he's worked with and, and people were up in arms about it because, you know, he'd worked with Messi and Busquets and Xavi and Iniesta. But what Guardiola is getting at is, is, an, is an intelligence on the pitch that, that De Bruyne shows uh, that sets him apart from maybe more technically gifted players. Yeah, he, he said, I believe he said something along the lines of Messi sits on a table of his own and Kevin sits on the table next to him, mm. um, which I think is a, a wonderful way to put it. I, th- I think this is what we're, we're perhaps starting to, to learn with, with Guardiola now having him week in, week out. is Perhaps some things need a, a pinch of salt. That's not to, to, to downgrade De Bruyne's performances. I think they've been brilliant since the season started. I think it's more the, the things like saying Kolarov played the the best game he'd seen from a centre-back. Things like that that feel a little bit hyperbolic. Um, I think in relation to De Bruyne, he, he has been the star turn for them um, this season. I think he was very impressive last season as well. Uh, for me, the, the most important improvement or most impressive improvement since he arrived is, is Raheem Sterling's form. I think he's yeah. turned into a player that can now actually produce. Um, and it hasn't necessarily been working on his deficiencies as much in terms of his finishing but actually getting him into positions where he can, can pass the ball, he can square it off and give it to players in much better positions to score. I think that's what's improved his game um, dramatically. There was an instance, in fact, in that game where I think last season you see him try to take that one-on-one and he likely fluffs it, whereas this time around he was, was in a position where he could square it to a teammate and just takes the pressure off him and, and he seems to be playing with a lot less pressure in general. Yeah, his his finishing is still a little suspect, isn't it? He he had that great run in this game, uh, went past three or four players, and then his finishing let him down again. But as you said, he, he looks rejuvenated. He looks like he cares again. And perhaps, Morgan, it, it comes back to that that adage we have about Guardiola, that um, once you get into the final attacking third, he allows his players to have a lot more uh, freedom than, than people usually think he does. And uh, maybe that's what Sterling is thriving on right now. 
I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, I think a player like Raheem Sterling absolutely needed a guy like Pep Guardiola, you know, with all the stick that he's gotten from the Manchester City fans from last year and then obviously the England team over the summer. Um, you know, he needed somebody to come in and say, look, uh, you know, I want you to go out and do you. I want you to be as creative as you possibly can. Do what you're, you know, do what is your strengths. You know, I mean, you can work on the deficiencies later, but for right now, you need to do what's your strength. And I think playing to his strengths is what's going to give him the confidence to build up and then work on those deficiencies. So, you know, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more there. And I think allowing him that creative freedom just gives him all the more confidence. The finishing, you know, will it come? Who knows? It may never come. I mean, he may never, you know, he may never be a 15, 20 goal a year guy. But if he's setting up, you know, 20, 25 goals a year, then who cares? Chris, uh, while the Leicester City game was going on, uh, I, I had the scores turned off for the other games because I wanted to watch the highlights and not know what happened. And a friend of mine had texted me and said, what is going on with West Brom? Uh, and I looked, I went to soccer net, saw that West Brom were leading 4 nothing. Um, there, there are surprises in my life. And then there's this. How did that happen, Chris? How did West Brom go four goals up on West Ham? I'd love to, to give you a conclusive answer to that one. Um, I'm sure if you asked Tony Pulis, he would say that a good portion of that is the rec- recruits he was able to bring in late in the window because he's consistently talked about wanting those attacking players. Um, and I think for a lot of people, self-included, it was seen as an excuse um, for why the team was was performing poorly. Mm-hmm. I'm also keen not to, to make uh, one swallow be a summer on this because I think much like Crystal Palace, is it's a solid win. I, I, I think you'll you'll not see me say anything other than that. It's that consistency again, though. Um, this is a West Ham team that, for me, is chronically out of form, has started the season perhaps even worse than they could have planned it themselves um, in terms of going out of Europe, in terms of just not settling at, at the Olympic Stadium. I think, in general, this is a team that is, is suffering a real sophomore slump under Slavin Village. And it's typified by the goals as well. You look at where they're occurring. They're all in, for me, areas that you should be defending. Um, areas where your ball, where the ball shouldn't be allowed to bounce if you are trying to, to keep that clean sheet. And again, you know, it's no surprise that high quality players are, are taking relatively uh, solid chances in the Premier League. Those are kind of the cardinal sins that you get warned not to make when you, you enter this league. And, and for some reason, West Ham are, are making them. Um, I think that the bigger concern right now for me is, is, is West Ham and, and how they move forward with this because there seems to be a genuine negative uh, cloud forming at, at that football club because it's not even just on-field things. It's, it's off-field things too that are, are really turning the, the fan base against the club. Morgan, Chris uh, is absolutely right because those goals were se- three of those goals at least were self-inflicted by West Ham. A silly PK, a handball, silly giveaway, trying to play out of the back as if they're Barcelona. The fourth goal, fair enough. Uh, it was a good break start by Dan Fletcher involving Rondon and Chadley. I just feel like there's there's something bigger going on at West Ham. But here's the thing. They did come back into the game. Another Antonio header brought them back into the game from a Pyatt cross. Um, we don't give, perhaps we don't give Antonio enough love uh, as, as one of the best headers of the ball in the Premier League. Um, so I guess the, it's tough to contextualize this game because 
it looked like when they uh, went back to 4-2, it looked like West Ham would come back and actually maybe even win this game. Yet, as soon as they went up 4-2, I think that was the last chance they created. That was, And that was probably in the 62nd, 63rd minute. So it's so hard to understand what this West Ham team is doing because there's so much talent on that team, yet they're, they're just not delivering. Well, and I had pegged West Ham as my aggression candidate this year just because... You know, I think that under Slavin Bilic with his and managerial... That, by, by the way, that's regression, not relegation. Am I getting that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay, regression, sorry. not relegation. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, 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 no. There's, there's a difference there. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't I don't think they're bad. They're obviously not bad enough to get relegated. But, um, you know, I, I just don't think they're going to hit the heights that they hit last year. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, mid-table, uh, maybe a little bit further down from that, might be more realistic for them this year with the way that things are going. I think... Village is a manager who, at least from with, with my tracking of him, has had immediate success when he's gotten there and then had that sophomore slump the second year. Why? I'm not exactly sure. It happened at Besiktas. Um, I Does it, it feel also like we're seeing this like pretty much about sure. every manager these days, though, Morgan? Like every manager does well when they initially get there and then the second season syndrome. Maybe this is just the state of football now. And it may very well be. I mean, it could, it may very well be that. I think with the turnover of players, there's a lot that comes into there. You have guys that come in, they're taken over from, you know, managers who had their own system and their own style. They play with what they have, and then a manager goes out and buys his own guys, and it doesn't turn out quite as well. Um, you know, the second season syndrome is happening a lot. Obviously, at Chelsea, the second season syndrome ended up in the title, but then the third, <laughs> it it ended up very badly. So... You know, just to achieve year after year after year success, like what we saw with Manchester United, like what we saw with Arsenal, uh, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, like what we saw kind of with Chelsea, those, you know, that there's two, three years there in the mid 2000s. I, you know, I just, I don't know that it's something that is going to be around for a while. I think that teams are very quick to adapt these days to the styles of new managers. And I think that that's what's ha- you're, that's what you're seeing here with Billich too. I think you're seeing teams adapt to the style that West Ham play. They're adapting to and knowing that Dimitri Payet, basically everything runs through that team. So you're seeing guys trying to nullify his impact. And once you do that, there's not a whole lot else in that, uh, in that West Ham team aside from if they did a lucky cross to Mikhail Antonio, but they can do. <laughs> a lucky cross to Mikhail Antonio. I'm sure a lot of West Ham fans are yelling at you right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so at this point, let me give you, uh, let me update our listeners on results around uh, Europe. Uh, after game week three in Germany, Bayern continued their perfect record after beating Ingolstadt 3-1. Although the play on the field was much closer than the scoreline actually ended up suggesting. The big talking point this week in Germany, however, was a young U.S. men's national team international that no one on soccer Twitter is talking about, Christian Pulisic who scored and provided two assists a day before his 18th birthday. Morgan, what were you doing when you turned 18? The day I turned 18, I went to a 7-Eleven. I bought a lotto ticket, a pack of cigarettes, and a Playboy magazine just because <laughs> of I then drank very, very cheap beer that night, and then I enrolled in culinary arts school. I am so, so uh, angry with myself for asking you that. In League oh, after its five games played, Monaco continued their excellent start to the season, 
while much maligned Edison Cavani scored four goals, meaning uh, PSG won by six goals. In Spain, Barcelona and Atletico Madrid scored five goals on Lejans and Sporting Gijón respectively, with Real Madrid just having kicked off at the time of recording. Finally, in Serie A, Lazio, Milan and Napoli all recorded wins, while uh, the big game of the week uh, played out with Inter beating Juventus, surprisingly, 2-1 at home. When we come back for part three, we'll talk about the rest of the uh, games in the league, in the Premier League, as well as give you our top fours and our players of the week. Stay tuned for section three of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Part three of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Chris, let's start with top fours. Mine, I'm going to do mine first. Manchester City, I still have Man United. I think at this point that's a stupid prediction. Tottenham in third, Chelsea in fourth. Uh, give me your top fours, Chris. I think it's City, um, Man United, Liverpool, Tottenham. Hmm. Morgan? Uh, I'm going to go with City. And I'm going to surprise a couple people with mine. I'm going to go with Arsenal second. <laughs> what? Second. Everton okay. third, Chelsea fourth. You have City, Arsenal, Everton, and Chelsea. Huh. Yes, sir. Morgan is back on the World Soccer Talk podcast, guys. Tweet at him. Uh, all right, Morgan, we'll start with you for our Player of the Week. My Player of the Week, Juan Comilo Zuniga, oh. runner-up Islam <laughs> Slimani. Oh, goodness. We're going to have to talk about Watford, aren't we? Chris, your Player of the Week. I'm going to go for Christian Pulisic. Um, wait a and minute. And I will... Wait a minute. Player of the Week well, of the... Wait a minute. Don't be cheating, Chris. Oh, is it exclusively the Premier League? <laughs> yes. This is pr- uh, pretty much exclusively a Premier League podcast for all intents and purposes. <laughs> I, um, okay, with, the, with that said, then I will say that the Player of the Week for me is Nasser Chadley. Oh. All right. By the way, Chris, I didn't get to ask uh, you what what was what were you doing on your 18th birthday? Uh, I think if I remember right, I went for a beer with my dad in a pub, um, and then I think I had school the next day, so I couldn't actually be out too late. Morgan, you see that he was being respectful and following the law because in Britain he can I drink had, at 18. I had school that day. <laughs> <laughs> you were drunk at school. Probably was. I think I know I did a shot before school. Uh, yeah, Morgan, you're, I'm kicking you off the podcast. My <laughs> player of the week was Kevin De Bruyne for result uh, for reasons stated. Uh, he was absolutely brilliant and uh, had his hand in every single goal that Manchester City scored. Let's talk about uh, this one game that happened. Uh, I don't know. I blacked out during it, Chris. Watford beating Manchester United three one. Chris, I remember a time. A glorious time before the international break when I was so happy. Manchester United had won three games. Pogba was playing well. He'd signed. Ibrahimovic was scoring every game. International break happens. Lose to City. Lose midweek in the Europa League. Lose today to Watford. Three losses in a week. What is going on, Chris? And I hate to jump on a potential bandwagon here and say that I think Wayne Rooney is the problem. Ah, yeah. I'll have to agree with you. I think what? he's the only problem. Uh, I, I I think there are a variety of others. Mm-hmm. See, I think he's the most pressing concern, though. Um, and the thing is, it, it, it is quite popular to, 
to have a go at him and, and sort of lump blame on him. And, and I understand why that is. Um, I think we have a bizarre fascination with, with tearing down those who are, who are at the top and waiting for that first slip to do so. The, the thing is with him, physically, he hasn't taken care of his body, I think, during his career. Well, um, I mean, I'll, I'll and, have to say his hair looks great, so there's that. He took care of that. Yeah, I mean, you, you could argue there's a, a microcosm for the problem. Is He's been far more focused on the the, the kind of external and the internal. Um, mm-hmm. And look, it's, it's come to that point where something that was, I would argue, a foundation to his game, which was the ability to be explosive and, and burst past players and, and use physical presence to his advantage, the absence of that relative to those around him or the diminishment of that has now severely impacted the way he plays. And he doesn't look a world-class player at this at this precise moment. And honestly, I, I don't think this is form. I think this is uh, ability at this point. Yeah. I, th- I think he's he's not a player that will regenerate and have this resurgence. Um, you could then, if you wanted to go down that rabbit hole, debate whether he ever really was world-class or was he a player that had world-class tendencies now and again. Um, I think for the for the benefit of this, we'll stick to the fact that he's just not good enough for that team and he, he's actually, I would say, quite an inhibitor in their ability to play even remotely free-flowing football. Um, and I think, honestly, there are the likes of, of Martial and, and other players that I think come into that team and do a much better job and give them something that is, is much more conducive, not just to giving the team success, but I think work better with the likes of Zlatan. Um, as that attacks figurehead, so it's up to Mourinho whether he does it. He's he's often been someone who is all about winning and, and the ruthlessness, and I, and I wonder if perhaps in taking this job he underestimated where Wayne Rooney was in in terms of his career trajectory, and that now he's learning the hard way that that he's simply not usable or serviceable as a player in the starting eleven. Here here are my quick thoughts on on Rooney Morgan before I come to you. Um, it's a it's one of those things where I have a little bit of sympathy with Mourinho uh, in the sense that Mourinho has had this track record of him wanting to play with these marquee or manage these marquee English players like Gerard and Lampard and Terry. Uh, and he, he sees them as, uh, you know, as the as the the purveyors and the, the distributors of his message throughout the team. So I think that's why he trusts Rooney. But the problem, uh, as, as Chris mentioned, I think any objective person will say that Wayne Rooney does not deserve to be starting for Man United. I think we are at that point now that that, that is beyond contestation. Anyone will agree with that. What I fail to understand is looking if, if, if Mourinho is smart and he looks at Rooney's history under Sir Alex during times when he was the best, playing his best, Sir Alex made sure to drop Rooney when Rooney was out of form because Sir Alex understood that Rooney played his best when he felt like he had a point to prove. For the last three seasons, ever since David, David Moyes took over at Man United, Rooney has Rooney is the w- only player on the team, the, the only player on the team whose place has not been under question. And I think that's why he gives four out of ten performances over and over again. Just as a thought, ex- just as one experiment, I'd like to see Mourinho come out in the press and say he dropped Rooney for a game and see what happens. At worst, Morgan... Mm-hmm. Rooney can't do any worse than he's doing right now. I agree. Um, I think that one thing that we're really that we may be overlooking on here is that Sir Alex Ferguson was so entrenched in United by the time 
Rooney got there, that he had the clout to be able to drop Rooney. Um, you know, he could look at him and say, all right, you're dropped, and it doesn't matter, is what, you know, what Sir Alex says goes, because he was the end-all, be-all. Right. Now that we're in the post-Ferguson era, I don't think that a lot of these managers, like, you know, Moyes and Van Hall, were given the ability to drop Rooney because of the fact that, at least from an ownership standpoint, he's the he's the face of United. You know, he's the guy that everybody is thinks he, of. Is he, though? Is he, though? He was. He, he was yeah, he facing, may have, he was, but I mean, last se- even even last season, the buzz for all men United players were uh, two seasons ago. We were talking about Falcao and Angel Di Maria. We were talking last season about Schweinsteiger. Sure, that that didn't go brilliantly well, or whatever that is. The point is that I don't think we are at a point where Rooney is the face of Manchester United, and I don't get this obsession with with Rooney from the managers. This is the thing is that I think that he's the corporate face of Man United. I'm not saying that he's the playing face of Man United. There's a difference here. That's the biggest difference. Wayne Rooney is the one that they put out there because he's English speaking, because he's British. He's the one that can move product. He's the one that can move shirts. He's the one that can move Chevys, whatever. You know, he's the spokesperson for Man United. And I think that's the reason why you're seeing these owners that really want him out there. And I think that there is some undermining coming in from the ownership that they want him to play just because of that fact. Now, with Mourinho coming in, a manager who has had massive success in his career up till last season, um, you know, he's somebody who is seen as having the clout to be able to look at Wayne Rooney and say, you're not doing a good job. I want to drop you. He can do that. He has that ability. The question is, will he be allowed to do that by the higher-ups on there? And I think at this point, I don't think they're allowing him to do that. So, Chris, last point on this. Let me take off my Man United hat for a second and do my job as a host and play devil's advocate. So, in questioning my own assumptions about Rooney, I went to uh, to, to Squawk, or Optostat, sorry. Uh, and, and you and I actually have talked about this uh, off-air before, about, about how we kind of get tired with this over, you know, over-reliance on stats. But trying to be objective, I went to Optostats and looked at Rooney's past completion, all that stuff. What I noticed was... Rooney's past percentage was excellent in his own half and exceptionally bad in the latter half, in Watford's half. Is Rooney being, are we, are we expecting Rooney to play a more attacking role than he is capable of? When I, when I see, Fellaini, so to give you a, a comparison, because every experiment has to have a control, I look at Fellaini from today's game. Fellaini's past completion, almost 100% because all those passes were in his own half. So had Fellaini been trying to play that Rooney role, I'm sure his pass percentage would have been lower. Are we expecting a little bit weight too much out of Rooney because it's Rooney? No, I would I would say not in the slightest. I, I think uh, he is on, what is it, 300000 a week at this precise moment. So when you earn that kind of money, when you demand that kind of money, and I think in that respect he, he set him up himself up for a fall when he demanded they sign in inverted commas world-class players he has to produce and I mm-hmm. think it would be far too easy to say that we're expecting too much I think he built this pedestal for himself this was not necessarily something that that those around him put him onto it was something he constructed with his demands that he placed on the club both financially and in terms of, of the direction they were moving in 
Fair enough. I guess uh, let's move on from this because uh, we've spent a lot of time on United and haven't even talked about the fact that Watford were very good today. Uh, Morgan Kapui scored, uh, scored a goal and has continued his exceptional form at the start of the season. Uh, and what I found amazing was here talking about stats because I guess this is funny because it's the first time I actually looked at all these stats. Watford had 60% possession at the end of the first half against Manchester United. That in itself tells you everything you need to know about Mourinho and the status of Manchester United's play. But sorry, let, let's focus on Watford, who, who who had a very good game. They did. And, you know, you, you kind of saw it from the awful, was it the uh, 13th minute when De Gea and Smalling kind of had their little uh, mishap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Igalo last year probably buries that goal, and it gets even worse for United. Um, you know, they, they played well. Watford, I think, are a team that, is going to play really well. Mazzari is a very, very good manager. I think he, he knows now how to set that team up. Um, and I think that they're going to be kind of right around there, around mid-table, a little higher, and they're going to give the you know the higher teams uh, a run for their money. I mean, they were beating Chelsea at one point. So I think that uh, you know it, they're a very dangerous team. And we knew that last year under, San, under uh, Kiki Sanchez-Flores. Um, but again, I mean, they, they do, they've got really good players. Etienne Capu has been fantastic for them ever since he signed, ever since he got out of the, uh, out of that Spurs, I guess, lull, you could say for him, he's been scoring goals. Troy Deeney is a fantastic striker. He got all the fantastic. Going forward, I think, yeah, Watford's going to be somebody to uh, contend with. I don't think that they're going to be the pushovers that everybody remembers them being, you know, from the last time that they were up and, and previously. Chris, let's talk to uh, talk to you now about Palace, Stoke City. Uh, I think we all on the Warsaw Talk podcast tend to be a little uh, persnickety when it comes to Alan Pardew. But since the Tottenham loss, they won. Uh, they won in the Football League Cup second round against Blackpool. A draw against Chris, uh, against Burnmouth that arguably they could have, they should have won had Zaha put away some chances. Uh, beat Middlesbrough last week. Won very comfortably albeit mostly through set pieces, against Stoke City today. Tell me your feelings on Alan Pardew right now. Uh, I, th- I think you're finding someone who is slowly putting together the kind of style that works best for him and, and his understanding of the game. I think he's someone that relies heavily on, on wide players, someone that um, actually would like to make more of set pieces. I mean, in my experience, he hasn't been particularly fantastic with them um, in fact there was a decent period at his last club where they didn't score from from a set piece but I think in, in signing Benteke that really was kind of the last piece of the puzzle for them because that was someone who could convert those crosses and those opportunities um, I think there will be moments where it clicks like it did against Stoke I think there will also be moments of frustration I think what you'll see with with Palace this season realistically is a team that uh, manages to flick between the two poles of, of extreme in that sense. Um, Morgan, your thoughts on uh, Stoke City at this point? They've they've had a very poor start. Uh, before the game, I think Mark Hughes was talking about contextualizing the first three results, was talking about how they'd played some difficult opposition, had played away from home. This was another game away from home, but they really looked completely out of it there was there was no chance creation it wasn't as though crystal palace only scored from set pieces they created other chances on the break and honestly that arnautovic blinder which he tends to score came out of nowhere and they didn't even deserve that one goal 
They didn't. And uh, I think what you're seeing here is the kind of death throes of Mark Hughes at Stoke. Um, you know, I mean, it, with a team that's spent as much money as they have and the team that he's assembled, that's a good team. I mean, that really is a good Stoke team. They, they should be comfortably mid-table, shouldn't have to worry about uh, any sort of relegation or anything like that. But I just think that Sparky has out, outweighed or outstayed his welcome uh, at Stoke. I really think that that's the biggest problem that we're having on here. And I think he's probably going to be the first managerial guy to uh, to get the sack this season. I think that if, if they're smart, they'll probably end up getting rid of him soon. Stoke have spent a lot of money since they've been in the Premier League. And I think going down for them will be a death knell for that club. Speaking of going down, Chris, uh, the game that I was watching when these two teams were playing was Southampton against Swansea. One of the greatest, most confusing things that happened this weekend was how Southampton only won by one goal because they were absolutely dominant against Swansea. Had it not been for chances that Shane Long, Charlie Austin, Redmond, all of them missed, I'm not exagger- exaggerating when I think uh, when I say that I think Southampton could have won by six, seven, eight goals this game yeah I think we've, we've talked about this before that the idea that Swansea could be in a, a lot of trouble this season um, to be fair you were, you were the first one to talk about it but um, Karthik and I were kind of skeptical of that I think you you were on this before uh, most other people were yeah which I, I feel like I deserve extra points for boldness given uh, the gaffer support so yeah um, that's right no I I, I I, th- I think ultimately what surprised me about them was their willingness to, to let go of consistent performers um, and players that had had realistically put them in the position um, that they'd been in, in their pomp in, in at least recent years. Um, and the lack of what to me seemed like planning in, in signing their replacements, a lot of the moves seemed reactionary um, mm. rather than preemptive, which is a, a little bit of a surprise given the way that Swansea... Have, have operated since they came into the, the top flight. For me, they've always been a club that's been not just run from a business standpoint, from a financial standpoint, but they've been one that's been diligent in the, the process of, of tending to its squad and, and planning for that future. Um, and, you know, you look at maybe some of the players who could come in, the likes of Alfie Mawson, who, who doesn't have any top flight experience, who really managed to, to sort of fix his career at, at Barnsley, but then again, it had not done a great deal outside of, I want to say, the third tier of English football. That's not the kind of player that you think will come in and, and have a huge impact. Um, and that's before you even look at things at the other end of the field where they need to start really scoring some some goals if they're going to get out of this trouble. Yeah, while you were talking, I realized that it's actually the gaffer's birthday. So it must have been heartbreaking. For, happy birthday, gaffer, first of all. And uh, it must be heartbreaking for him to that have watched. Birthday. Yeah, happy birthday from all of us at World Soccer Talk. Um I have to say that this was the first time that I felt that Southampton, coming back to Southampton, clearly missed uh, Graziano Pelle as well as Sadio Mane. It's the first time I've thought that this season, uh, just the number of chances they missed. Morgan, let's uh, switch to the last game we'll talk about tonight, which is Tottenham-Sunderland. one nothing win for Tottenham. Um, first of all, I really like those pink away jerseys for Sunderland. I, I saw a lot of people uh, on Twitter not big fans of those but what do you what do you guys think about those i quite like those i think that rob harris on twitter really hit the nail on the head and that sunderland are doing their best to try and stay in the league by switching their colors to the official premier league colors oh <laughs> i see That's well You'll see the black chris what do you think about those 
Uh, I've got no concerns about children in Sunderland playing out late at night because I don't think uh, cars will miss them in those kits. <laughs> those are bright, aren't they? Uh, so, Morgan, the, the the talking point here from the starting eleven for Tottenham was uh, so Chris Carthick and I have talked about Janssen a lot and how he might fit in with Kane. He really struggled last week. Uh, he was dropped today with the Dembele, Wanyama, Dele Alli uh, triumvirate in midfield playing behind Kane and uh, and Hume Son on the left and Sissoko from the right. Did It worked in the sense that they, they had lots of shots from, from distance, but honestly, it wasn't until probably the 40th minute or something where they created a real clear-cut chance uh, uh, that, that led to a shot on goal to Tottenham. No, you're right. And, I mean, I, I watched this game today. I just... It, you know, Tottenham really battered Sunderland's goal from distance. Um, but you're right, they didn't create a whole lot of chances. Sunderland actually should have been up uh, mm. if it wasn't for Steven Pienaar. Just oh, yeah, that Yanezai cross. He should have buried that. He should have. I mean, there is no reason for that. That, again, kind of points to the fact that there's a reason why Steven Pienaar was a free agent. Right. Uh, you know, I think that what they, you know, the whole game really, I mean, they did, they, it seemed like they had the pressure on, they were in Sutherland's half a lot, they were doing a lot of chances uh, from distance, the ones that they did off of set pieces, Jordan Pickford, Pickford did a very, very good job in goal, and really, I mean, this, in all fairness, this probably should have been a nil-nil draw for Sunderland if it weren't for that horrible, horrible defensive error from Poppy Gilaboji, who I will, uh, again, add that Chelsea actually made a profit on when they sold him to Sunderland. Um, you know, that was his second one of the game. He had another one in the first half where it was a, a ball in the box off of a set piece that everybody missed. It came right down to him, and he just whiffed on the kick. Um, he did the same thing here, except this time Harry Kane was – I think it was Harry Kane was there, um, you know, to really pounce on it. And, I mean, that, you know, that right there just kind of shows – I mean, it comes down to one mistake, and then you're done. So if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for that one mistake, this should have been a draw for uh for Sunderland I don't think that um you know for all the long distance chances for all the possession for all of the time that they spent in Sunderland's half I don't think Tottenham looked uh you know looked very good in that in that sense I, I can't wait till Chelsea buys back Jalobji for like 600 million and we'll we'll talk to you about that oh, then Morgan. yeah castle yeah, for eight million <laughs> yeah uh Chris final Speaking question of- uh, no Pogba stuff Morgan stop it uh, Chris, final question about tonight, uh, about this game. Um, I think it was game week two where you and I were talking about that awesome header that Lamella scored where he ran across the box uh, and had that brave header that I forget who they played, but it was the, one of the only goals in the game. And we were talking about how Lamella really needs to kick on. Hasn't happened, and, and he is sort of reverting back to the inconsistency. Uh, he was dropped today, but but even midweek didn't have the best game. So are you concerned about Eric Lamella going back to an inconsistency that we've come to associate with him almost. A, a little bit. I think that the expectation has changed with him um, in terms of what he delivers and, and the influence he can have over proceedings in general. And I think there's maybe a little bit of a growing pain with that in the sense of there was a period where he was seen as a, a bust financially. And, and I think in a bizarre way, that perception gave him a freedom to perform that maybe he didn't have when he first arrived. Um, and I think at the minute, even watching the game on Sunday, I thought in the, the 10 or so minutes he had, he actually did more than a lot of those who, who had started the game. Mm. Um, I don't think it's fair to, to single anyone out, as much to say that he 
could have had a solid case for starting off the back of it. Um, I also think that someone in his position would be expected to do something every game. And actually, right. that, that clash against Monaco that you're referring to, there wasn't really anyone, I think, who came out with a glowing report card off sure. the back of it. Um, I think there was a lot of mediocrity in, in that performance from, from Tottenham. So I, I think, as yet, it's a minor dip. I don't think it's a, enough to think it's a, a chasm in terms of his performance. Listeners, there's lots of football coming up, lots to, for you to watch, including next week's games. And we'll be back after those games uh, to talk more football with you, with Chris, Morgan, Karthik. Uh, make sure you get on iTunes, leave us a review. And uh, on behalf of everyone here at Well Soccer Talk, I want to thank both Chris and Morgan for joining me. And I bid you to enjoy your football. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 